Okay, because it's an important part of Buddhism. But I remember as when I was part of the Cambridge University Buddhist Society that one of the first books which I loaned from there when I was only about 18 was the Satipatthana Sutta and it was being translated you know, by a couple of Sri Lankan monks and this was quite a long time ago, maybe 60 years ago and in the forward to the Satipatthana Sutta they mentioned that they'd heard that anyone who practices Satipatthana Sutta can become fully enlightened within seven days. So they thought, now that's a marvelous um, claim by the Buddha. So they went over to Burma and they practiced Satipatthana on one of the retreats over there for ten days or two weeks. And then after two weeks they still weren't enlightened. So they gave it another try, did it again. And after the second time of doing the Satipatthana, still wasn't enlightened. So instead they decided to translate the Pali into English for everybody. And they never became enlightened. These are not as far as I know. I said, okay. So one of the things I thought, you know, I had a lot of confidence and faith in the words of the Buddha. So I thought, how come they were practicing and very diligent, how come the Buddha said, if you practice the Satipatthana, you become enlightened within seven days. And they tried it twice, so a diligent monks, why come they weren't enlightened? And that's what may be interested in what the Satipatthana actually means, especially in the Pali. And actually reading it up in the Pali several times and reading other suttas in the Pali, because there's always connections, you get a lot of evidence about what the Satipatthana means, what the suttas means, by having a broad knowledge, not just focusing on one sutta, but many of those words are repeated in other parts of the Pali Canon. Not only that, there was something at that time I didn't realize. There was a whole Samyutta, a chapter in the Samyutta Nikaya on Satipatthana. And then they got some very wonderful information in that on things like what it means by seeing this arising, this passing away. That was a usual English translation and the Pali could mean that, but in the Satipatthana Samyutta they explained it in greater depth. They meant much more than seeing things coming and going. It was saying you understand why, the reasons why things come into existence, and the reason why they cease not just seeing them coming and going, but why they come and go, the causes. And that became very important, such as, this is just the intro, the, no, the third Satipatthana. You all know what the third Satipatthana is? The chitta, the mind, and it says, and here you understand, you know, what the mind coming and going, coming and going, in the Satipatthana Samyutta, it explains what that means. What causes the chitta to arise? And what when it disappears causes the chitta to disappear? You know what that is? Anyone who remembers all that stuff which Ajahn Bamali and, and uh, Venerable Sunyo taught last time? Yeah? No, Nama Rupa. These, uh, put it bluntly, it's like the 
the contents of any sort of uh, uh, consciousness, six different types of consciousness, the conscious, what you're conscious of. When there's nothing to be conscious of, or when the objects of consciousness disappear, Nama Rupa, then Chitta disappears. Anyway, that's going to come soon. And what that does, that's one of the very controversial, I shouldn't call it controversial, it's what many people argue against this, it's one of the very powerful arguments from the suttas to show that this thing which you call consciousness is not permanent. It comes according to causes, when those causes disappear, so does the mind consciousness. The citta is not a permanent entity. Anyway, I will now prove that for you, without a shadow of doubt. But first, before I do that, I usually do the Namotasa before reading the Satipatthana or any Dhamma from the suttas. Namotasa Bhagavato Alahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Alahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Alahato Samma Sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sangang Namasami. So this is right mindfulness. Uh, factor seven of the Eightfold Path, and this is as far as I got last time. So it starts out, what now is Samasati, right mindfulness? And mostly we uh, talk about the Satipatthana Sutta, which is what I'm going to do now, Majjhiminikai number 10. But there's some other interesting parts of the word Sati, mindfulness, they always say that someone who develops mindfulness, they develop a good memory as well. And that was almost a word which uh, Sati had those two meanings. I don't know if you really can call them two meanings, but when you develop one, you develop the other. When you're aware, you tend to remember things. That's an interesting thing to keep in mind because even when you're meditating, sometimes you get into some nice deep meditations and you think, my goodness, is this a real meditation or are you just blanked out in some, uh, some trance? If it is a trance, you don't know what's going on, it does mean that it's not the deep meditations. Deep meditations always have mindfulness, strong mindfulness, which means you can remember things very easily. I don't know if you have ever experienced like a life-threatening moment, like, you know, crashing in a car or like falling over a cliff like I did when I was young, or being in a motorbike accident. Whatever it is, when those are life-threatening, it's as if the adrenaline forces your mindfulness to be incredibly strong. And you remember those moments and you can't really forget them. But we always say that that's the negative part of mindfulness. You're aware of something which is so threatening, it increases your mindfulness. There's also the opposite when you're in these beautiful states of mind in meditation. It is beautiful, it's not threatening at all, but still your mindfulness is increased enormously. And you can remember what you experienced so clearly for years afterwards. That's one of the factors of heightened mindfulness. You can recall them so well. 
So also, the, when you're in deep meditation, please don't take notes, don't think I must remember this. Don't think, what does this mean? You review your meditation at the very end, once it's finished. And don't think I might forget something. It was a very good meditation. You can recall it so easily. I, there's no other English word, but sometimes I say it's similar to being traumatized. If you experience some sort of trauma, you, can, you can't get it out of your head. But that's always negative. It's a positive trauma. It'd be great if you can find an English word for that. But anyway, that's what happens, and mindfulness becomes very strong. That's this other meaning. Anyway, in terms of the Eightfold Path, what is Samasati? the right mindfulness. And I think you've all heard me sometimes suggest different translations of these words like uh, samadhi, instead of calling it concentration, calling it stillness. Samasati, that was a beautiful translation and you can't find any fault with it whatsoever. So, you know, sadhu, 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 I think to Professor Rice Davids who coined that word. And now of course it's Everybody knows what mindfulness is. So what is the right mindfulness according to the Buddha? The four focuses of mindfulness. This is the four satipatthanas. And straight away, usually many people call this the four foundations of mindfulness. And I always felt that that's not a really proper translation because what does it mean, the four satipatthanas? Many of you have heard that so many times, you practice it probably many times. It's what you're mindful of, where you put your mindfulness. There's many things you could be mindful of. <coughs> you could be mindful of the cough I just made. You could be mindful of the hunger in your tummy if you uh, haven't eaten yet. You can be mindful of the heat in the room or the cool of the room. But they say, no, no, this is not just any object of your mindfulness. It's a four proper focuses of mindfulness. It's one of the reasons why these days mindfulness is used in so many different areas, like teaching US Marines in battle how to shoot straight. That's not one of the four focuses of mindfulness. So this is actually noticing where you put that mindfulness. So the four focuses of mindfulness lead in one direction only, to the purification of beings, to going beyond sadness and crying, to the disappearance of physical and mental suffering, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. And this lead in one direction only, the, in Pali is Ekayana, and Ekayana means like a single going. It's not a one path. That would be ekayana. This is ekayana. Okay, it's a pedantic point there, but it, it changes a lot of the meaning. And it's also, the word ekayana is only used in one other sutta in the Pali Canon. And that just happens to be the next sutta. They give a description of, I see a man, he's practicing in this way, and I know that he's going to end up in a lot of suffering, maybe even going to a lower realm after he dies. And how do you know that? It's like you know that path, and it's a path which has no left turn, no right turn, no U-turn, and in the forest, it can only go in one direction. 
It can only go ekayana, in one direction, keep on going there, it has to lead to the pit of hot coals. That's the Buddha's simile in the next sutta after the Satipatthana. So it's quite clear what that word means, it's not the only way. Who knows what the only way is? The Eightfold Path, yeah, of course. Satipatthana is essential, but so is all the other factors of the path. The four focuses of mindfulness lead in one direction only, to purification of beings, to going beyond sadness and crying, disappearance of physical and mental suffering, and a whole lot of it. The attainment of the true way for the realization of Nibbana. What are the four? And hopefully that we've got the same text as you've got there. Instead of just, you know, uh, this, the next, and whatever, I, I numbered them, one, two, three, four. They don't number things in the, uh, the suttas, but I thought that's a wonderful way of organizing it. So at least it gives people much more understanding, make it simpler. So the first Satipatthana, having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of the body, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Two, having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of experience, Vedana, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, number three, you abide aware of the mind, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of mind objects, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. And having translated it, translated it like that, and I will defend sort of any people who uh, challenge that, um, that translation, it's meaningful for you, for the start, you understand exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And I emphasize the points. I used to say I stress the points, but because stress has got no part of meditation, I usually use the word emphasize instead of stressing these points. Having restrained the five hindrances, the first line in each one of these four focuses of mindfulness. The word is Vinaya Lokaya Bija Domanasang, usually translated as having restrained grief and covetousness for the world. Maybe because I was rebellious as a student, I thought, what does that mean? As a student, I didn't have much grief, even though, you know the story, when my father died, I still didn't have any grief. And covetousness for the world? I was a young student, I didn't covet the world. Yeah, I wanted things, but not coveting them. That seemed to be a very uh, meaningless translation. And then when you started reading these suttas in Pali, just loke abhija, there's the finie loke abhija, then domanasa. Loke abhija, he came across it so many times in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, because there was parts of Buddhism, very core teachings like five hindrances, the Panchanuwarana, and those five hindrances Usually in most of the other suttas, they start with uh, Karma Chanda. It's the first one. And that's the usual form of the first hindrance. 
But then when you started reading Nangutra, they had a synonym for it. Loke Abhija. They had that as the first hindrance. And then they repeated the other four hindrances, the usual way. And then there was two other suttas. And in those two other suttas, the second hindrance was called Domanasang. And that's exactly what you saw in the um, Satipatthana Samyutta, having restrained, having already done it, restrained, not restraining, already completed, restrained, weakened those first two hindrances. And then, of course, you read in the commentary how the monks in the old days would explain those words. And uh, those monks in the, in the old days would also repeat that, that this particular phrase, having restrained grief and covetousness for the world, referred to having restrained the first two of the five hindrances. And they also said it was one of the uh, idioms of Pali, when there was a list of things, and it was a longish list, they would just state the first two, and the other one should be, uh, should be understood as also being included. So they sometimes called Sariputta and, Mog Sariputta and Moggallana went to visit the Buddha. And it would never mean just two monks went to visit the Buddha, there would be a lot of monks led by Sariputra Moggallana. The first two most important items of a group would always include all the other items. So they say even in the Satipatthana Atagata, Satipatthana commentary, that this does mean the five hindrances. And I mention that because to me that makes this Satipatthana practice alive. I justify it because sometimes the people say, no, no, you don't have to uh, weaken the five hindrances. And you do, that's what the Buddha said. And I think if those two Sri Lankan monks, very good monks, if they could have just weakened their five hindrances before they went off to Sri Lanka, they'd have got much better results of their hard effort. That's the point in the Satipatthana having restrained the five hindrances. You don't overcome them yet, but you make them much weaker. You know how you make them much weaker? By practicing the first six of the Eightfold Path. What comes before? Especially the sixth factor. You're restraining the senses. So the five hindrances don't have much power. You practice, you know, your uh, virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood, that weakens some of the hindrances. And you are the right, I call it motivation, the second factor of the Eightfold Path. You're coming from a motivation of letting go, nekama, kindness and gentleness. Does that motivation, where you're coming from, weakens the five hindrances. And of course, the first factor of right view. So this is almost like the six factors, first six factors support the seventh factor of weakening the five hindrances. 
then in each of the four focuses of mindfulness you abide aware of the body, of experience, of chitta, of mind objects, energized. In meditation, you're not zonking out. You may have to go through some sloth and torpor, sleepiness at first, but eventually, if you go on these retreats, you get so much energy, sometimes you can hardly sleep at all at night. So, you know, you get energized, but not energy, energy which is all over the place, which is wobbling all over the place, but this focused energy. So you can look at something and stay a long time on it. You've heard me do this demonstration before. What's this? What is it? Yeah, but keep on looking. What else is it? This is one of the problems with insight. You see something, you're told what you're expected to see, and you say, oh yeah, it's a stick. You think you've got it right, you've finished. You've done your degree, you've got the right answer. There isn't a right answer. You keep looking and looking and looking. And the longer you look, the more things you see. And you can get all sorts of different uses for this. The use which comes up right now, I've got an itchy back. Well, that's really nice. <laughs> I did have an itchy back and it felt good scratching it with this. So you see different uses of something. That's called insight. So, uh, you abide aware of the body, energized, knowing the purpose of what you're doing. The purpose of looking at this is not just to find something to scratch your back with. The purpose of these four-sighted patanas is, should be very clear, is actually to see, <coughs> to see the not me, not mine, not a self, in particular, that all these things, they are caused. When those causes are removed, then the effect is removed. And all these things, that when they are there, they may sort of grab you as being attractive, but the deeper you look at them, the more you see this is like just suffering, just wrapped up in a beautiful parcel. It's not me, not mine, and dukkha. That's the purpose of the Satipatthana, to see the truth. So, having restrained the five inches, you abide aware of the body, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of experience, Vedana. Energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of the mind, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of mind objects energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. That's the summary which applies to every one of the four Satipatthanas. So, questions, comments? You know, it's, it's really important doing the Satipatthana, it's not just lecturing you. It's not like going to school and being told what to believe. It just want you to question, if you wish. To ask, why did you translate it this way? Is this the only way to translate? Any questions? Yes, thank you, sir. 
very keen to do this, but when I look at, um, say, being aware of experience, what exactly would I be doing? What, could, what does that mean in, fa in practical terms? What it means in practical terms? Right now, you, I heard you, the experience of that sense of hearing, that's an experience. What is that like? What do I do? You know, how did that arise? Why did I listen to you? Exactly what is that? When I see you, I don't know how many years I've known you, I can still recognize you. You can recognize me, even though we've probably changed so much in the you know, 30 or 40 years I've known you. And what is it that I recognize when I see? What is seeing? What is, if you understand what seeing is, what hearing is, what smelling is, why are some smells attractive and some smells repellent? Why is one of my favorite smells batshit? It's honest. It's because I lived for a wonderful range retreat in a bat cave and they, I recognize that I, um, it connects me to some beautiful meditations I had in the bat cave, the smell of bats. This is actually where you start to understand what experience is. Why is there a pleasant experience, an unpleasant experience? And one of the strange things is, somebody said this and I approved of it so much, Pleasant experience is just a pause between two unpleasant experiences. An unpleasant experience is a pause between two pleasant ones. As human beings, we must always have both. If you just have pleasurable experience, you wouldn't recognize it anymore. A chef, if you're into your food and you go to a five-star restaurant and you enjoy the cuisine, if the next day you go to a four-star restaurant, this is rubbish. If that was me, and I went to a one-star restaurant, I'd think, wow, this is so delicious food. And what I usually eat. So all that is beautiful, appealing. You see the relative nature of that. And that was especially relevant and I think this was St. Augustine in the Christian church. He said that if you go to a heaven, you know, because you've been a good Christian, then uh, one day every year you have to go to hell. If you didn't go down to hell and experience suffering, you would never appreciate heaven. And actually that's, I think, a quote, I think it's from St. Augustine. And that actually had meaning for me. It's experience, understanding what it is. Thank you. Ajahn, could you please give an example of uh, how not me, not mine applies to, how do you apply to the understanding of five entrances? For example, yeah, I don't know how you feel today. You know, I've still got lots of jet lag and been working way too hard. And I think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful just to be able to 
flip a switch somewhere and have all the usual energy back again. But I can't do that. This is not me, not mine. I love the idea of not mine. It means you're out of control. It'd be wonderful, you know, when you were sick the other day in the hospital. Wonderful to say, yeah, I'm not going to get sick today. <laughs> can you do that? No. <laughs> you can ameliorate the sickness, yep. but you can't stop it. It's out of your control. Sure. That's a lovely thing to do because when you realize it's out of control, you have to let go. You do let go. It's not mine. I see. Yes, get it. Sue wants to say something more. Come on. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. So I'm contemplating how to abide being aware of experience. So would you actually sort of do some exercises like you're describing first and then go into your meditation and try to maintain that feeling? I suppose that experience um, is, a com is components. And when you take all the components out, it's not there. Is that more like it? That's one way of doing it, yes. I think you understand where my answer is going to come from next. When you get into really deep meditation, and much of your experience vanishes, when it comes back again, the experience is a burden. I like people who have out-of-body experiences, they come close to dying. When they come back again, and they can now see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. That's another burden on them. I still remember this young man, he was born uh, deaf and uh, they took him to a doctor one day, he couldn't hear at all what they were saying. And the doctor said, I think we can cure his inability to hear sound. There's a new operation which has been developed. So can we allow your son to have this operation? And the parents quite understandably said yes. Why not? It wouldn't cost them anything, and there was a pretty good chance that he could hear again. They gave him that operation, and now he could hear, and he got very angry at them. Why didn't you ask me, first of all, whether I wanted to hear? He had born without the ability to hear sound. He knew what it was like to not have to hear sound, and he preferred that to hearing sound. That was his own uh, experience. You kind of assume that having the experience of sound will be a pleasant thing. And he said, no, you don't know the difference. So these are sorts of things. <laughs> okay, look, I'm a monk, okay, so you may not agree with me. But the most pleasant times I live is just when you get into a deep meditation and I can't hear anything or see anything or feel anything in my old body. It's gorgeous when most of experience has vanished. 
they're suffering. But people often think, oh no, experience isn't suffering, just, you know, hearing monks say these stupid things, that's suffering. Or hearing people just, you know, do stupid statements on the TV, that's suffering. But when the whole lot vanishes, you feel like the whole lot is very heavy. Makes sense? Thanks. Okay. Anyway, that's my answer. Any questions over here? Yes, go on. Well, this is only introduction, by the way. Um, Ajahn, when you explained that um, you vanished and then after that um, you came back to the experience, um, my question is, so there is both sides. There is the vanish, the point where yeah. I vanish, and then the, there's this point where I experience. Yeah. How to merge the two on a day-to-day -day when, like, how, how do I, I have a choice, and how do I choose, you see? Because, for example, when I vanish, I know that, oh, there's nothing. And then when I came back to the experience, I know that, oh, I have this experience, I have these thoughts, and I'm doing... I'm doing my chores, I'm somebody's daughter, somebody's wife, and I have all these um, experience. And then sometimes I have to tell myself, I have to drop things. It's like as though I have a choice. It's as though um, when my mind starts to have more and more experience and then I got caught in worry and fear, mm -hmm. etc., then I told myself, okay, go back to the, the, to the point where I, I exist less, you know, less thoughts, and, and then I get back closer to the point where I vanish. But then sometimes I have to bring myself back because I still live in this world. I still have to function every day, and I still have to work. I still have to cook and do housework. And, and then... Like, in a way, when I see my friends or my family members, like, last time, I will carry them in my head all the time. Yeah. Okay. Because like, uh, I have to keep the questions short. Yeah. And so the answer is you don't have choice. It appears you have choice. You'll be conditioned. I often make a joke about this, but it's true. You get brainwashed by the people around you, the people who brought you up, by the people you l listen to. And after a while you get this beautiful brainwashing. Just, just let it happen. Don't be afraid. Don't be excited. Want less. So eventually you don't want anything. And you do your duties you know, to your husband and your family and your work out of kindness, not out of sense of self. So that'll be the solution, that's actually how it happens. But that's a personal question, because you asked me half of that a couple of nights ago, Friday night. So I'm just going to try and keep it to uh, the mindfulness of experience. How you do that, it's just how it happens. You're mindful, you don't choose what experience you're aware of. You notice that this is an important part of life. 
It is how this mind uh, behaves, how it lives, how it experiences itself in the world. Life. It's not doing, it's actually experiencing. What's it like to experience? All the different experiences you've had, why do we grade them? Like inspiration, desperation, <laughs> expiration, <laughs> my inspiration joke. So instead what we do, we, we learn from it. We get more data. And the more data we get, the more we can understand something. We don't do this, it's just the nature of life. You don't choose it, you let it happen. Anyway, oops, one of these questions disappeared. Supposing I am feeling irritated and I usually react to it by saying something, I would like to have Sati remember to just shut up. Any tips on this, please, Sachin? What you can do is what we call programming mindfulness. It's basically conditioning yourself. So when you're away from the irritation, when it's not there for you, that's when you remember to tell yourself, when this happens, I will not be irritated. When this happens, I will not be irritated. When this happens, I will not be irritated. Not those precise words, something which is more uh, close to the experience of irritation. So you prepare yourself. It's like putting an antivirus in your mind. You know, when somebody talks to me like this, well, look, it's so often husbands and wives. Often you can tell how long people have been married by how they talk to one another. I think that was from Agatha Christie said that. <laughs> and if you uh, a bit embarrassed, why do I talk to someone I love in that tone? Why am I always so critical? Why can't I be more kind to the people I love? And they still really love each other. Why? How can I solve that problem? So you tell yourself, when I meet my husband, I will not talk like that. When I meet my husband, I will not talk like that. When I meet my husband, I will not talk like that. Or in your own words. You're actually conditioning yourself, brainwashing yourself, if you wish. And you find it's amazing, it happens. If you want to find an easy exercise to show how powerful this is, I don't know what time you have to wake up in the morning, maybe many of you to go to work, say you have to wake up at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, set your alarm clock for five past seven. And when you go to bed tonight, you tuck yourself in, and then you say, I will wake up at 7 a.m., I will wake up at 7 a.m., I will wake up at 7 a.m. You feel safe because your alarm clock will go off at five past anyway. And it's amazing just how you wake up and it's one or two minutes either side of 7 a.m. The alarm hasn't gone off yet. You wake up when you've told your mind to wake up. It remembers and it does it. First time I did that, I was quite shocked how effective and reliable it was. So you may try that. And it gives you confidence in what we mean by programming your mind. Anyway, I forget where the other question is. So, when you feel safe, there's an old Chinese saying to love the tiger at a distance. 
Now, what does that mean? How can you love something at a distance? When the tiger, that could mean your husband, your mother, your boss at work, whoever that tiger happens to be. When they're at a distance, that's when you think about them. And then you express your love and kindness and gratitude and, and concern for them at a distance. So when you actually come close to them, the old habits are suppressed or surpassed by these new habits you programmed into yourself. Any more, Sue? You okay? So far so good. Okay. So, the next part here, did you have a question? No. The next part here is very easy for me, you've heard it many times before, but this is what it says next. And how are you aware of the body? And it begins with mindfulness of breathing. And I always mention this, that sometimes people think satipatthana is one thing for insight, Anapanasati is a way for samatha, for stilling the mind. And this shows, one of the first example, there's no difference between these. These two are the same. Samatha, like mindfulness of breathing, and vipassana, satipatthana, are the same. Anyway, mindfulness of breathing, how do you do mindfulness of breathing? That was the wrong question to begin with. You don't do it. This is what happens. You go to a quiet, secluded place. Is this hall in Nolamara quiet and secluded? Right in the middle of a suburb. It's not bad, is it? But it could be better. We could have triple glazed windows. We could have, uh, I don't know, a forest put around it. We could have the ceiling covered in concrete so there was no sound at all. We could make a rule that anyone who burps, who passes wind, has to go out straight away, can't come in for the next seven weeks. Anyone who laughs too. <laughs> no, of course not. So you can never get things totally quiet. And that's one of the reasons why, as a monk, even though I've lived in such beautiful forests, I've noticed that even forests aren't quiet. You know, some of those jungles in Sri Lanka and Thailand and uh, Malaysia, where I meditated and stayed in, they can be extremely noisy. Extremely noisy in the evening. The bugs, cicadas, and they can be just so noisy. And sometimes you go into your apartment somewhere in the center of Perth, which is double glazed, and you sit in there and you can't hear a thing. And no one will come and visit you. They don't do that in apartments these days in, in the West. The only people who knock at your door is maybe the postman or somebody selling you stuff. And it's seclusion. Do you really need to go into a forest for seclusion? Anyway, 
that so we try and find a reasonably quiet place, reasonable seclusion. Now that's my translation. That sometimes they used to say you you go to a, a forest. Does it have to be forest? Now, even the word they use in Pali for forest is aranya, where you know, aranyawasi means forest-dwelling monks. It literally means you know not ruled. In other words, beyond the reach of government, wilderness. The word wilderness is a much better translation of aranya. So if you think of our tradition, the forest tradition, we should really change that to the wilderness tr tradition. Not just have to, have to have trees to be in that tradition, but wilderness seclusion, quiet, away from things. So, in a desert, we'll qualify as aranya. There's not a tree around, but it's quiet. In a cave, in mountains, that's aranya. It's far away, remote. A quiet, secluded place, sit down comfortably. In that sutta it said you sit down cross-legged, palanka, with your back straight, and then you meditate. And this is just teaching for so many years. So some people just can't sit on the floor. If I asked all of you, get rid of those chairs, sit on the floor and don't move, you know, you'd have no peace in your body at all. and You would never come back again. Sometimes people need nice chairs. So instead of sitting on the floor straight back if you can, but sometimes you like to lean back, it's more comfortable for you. So it's what's most important is the comfort when you're sitting. Not that comfortable you fall asleep. There are two types of comfort. I'm not asking you to come and bring your lazy boy chair or a lazy girl chair or lazy LGBTQIAE plus chair. <laughs> I mean, just have a chair to sit down on. But sit down on, you can't really fall asleep, but you can be comfortable. That's the purpose. You go to a quiet, secluded place, sit down comfortably, and this is mindfulness of breathing, and give priority to establishing mindfulness. And that is an accurate translation. They call it parimukha, the mindfulness. Parimukha means, you can say, establishing mindfulness in front of you. But that also rose so many questions. What does it mean, in front of who? Where? It's not watching the tip of your nose. That's not where I live, behind my nose. That's not where I identify myself living all the time. So, where do you live? If I ask you to point to you, where you think you are, most people say in the head somewhere. So, if you look at it that way, the word establishing mindfulness in front of you means have it in front of your forehead somewhere, which is not right. You won't get anywhere that way. The word in front does not mean physically in front, it means the first on your list to give it priority. Make it the number one thing, mindfulness first of all. 
And this is one of the reasons why, you know, the, the monk who was here before me, the, the, the abbot of Bodhinyana Monastery before I took over, he would often advise me, he said, you know, your talks on meditation are great, but you go too deep, too quickly. And most people want to know how to start their meditation, to get the foundation right. And then, sort of he pointed this out, give priority to establishing mindfulness, first of all. So how do you establish mindfulness as a priority, the first thing on your list? And that's where present moment awareness and silence comes in. If you're thinking about the past, planning the future, you're not being mindful of what's happening now. I think it was, uh, remember the quote now, I remember the person who gave the quote, you know, the Rolling Stone, no, sorry, not the Rolling Stone, I'm getting in big trouble. So the Beatle, John Lennon, life is what happens when you're busy planning something else. Did I get that quote right? This is not the word of the Buddha, the word of John Lennon. Life is what happens when you're busy planning something else, he once said. And that just means life is what happens. You're not mindful of what's happening when you're busy planning anything else. Or you're busy remembering things. Mindfulness has to be in the present moment. And number two, to be fully mindful. That old story of Lao Tzu. So he took his, <laughs> took his um, disciple to see the sunset. They had to keep noble silence, so no words were allowed. And the disciples said, wow, what a beautiful sunset. And was not allowed to go on a walk with the master ever again. What's wrong with saying what a beautiful sunset? And the answer was, when he said what a beautiful sunset, he wasn't watching the sunset anymore. He was watching the words. His mindfulness had got lost in descriptions. And that's the best simile which I've ever come across to show that if you be really mindful, to be silent. Don't give things names. Don't figure out yet what it all means. Just to know what's happening right now in silence. So you give priority to establishing mindfulness. Any questions? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, you first, yes. Sentence under mindfulness of breathing it says, You go to a quiet, secluded place, sit down comfortably, and give priority to establishing mindfulness. Then, mindful, um, you teach us to be aware of the body then, before being mindful of the breathing. Isn't it? So shouldn't that mindfulness of the body come in between then mindful and you breathing? That's how I practice it. Yeah. But it says there to give priority to establishing mindfulness. It doesn't say on the body, but it is easier to start with your body more than anything else. You know, your experience, you know, as Sue said, it's not as solid, you don't know really what you're supposed to be watching. But your body, you know, you're with it so often, you can understand that instruction so easily. And I use that, as you know, in all the teachings which I give on meditation. 
when you're being mindful of your body, sweeping through the body, you are establishing that mindfulness. Because in your body, the experiences are always in this moment. You know, the memory of pain or the expectation of delight is just not as real as what's happening right now in your body. And number two, uh, once you can experience that body, because uh, it's in the present moment, some of the feelings in the body I've never found names for. You, that's why when you go to see the doctor, you say, well, how does it feel? Oh, it kind of hurts. <laughs> that's such a loose description. I feel very um, sorry for doctors. They're trying to find out what's happening in your descriptions of all the thousand different feelings of pain or tension or tightness or burning or it's so hard to describe what you feel. Our language is very, very limited. What was it that they used to say that Inuits, they got a hundred different words for snow. Was it a hundred or two hundred? I don't know. They say that's because they live in snow and they develop the language to understand it. All I know about snow is it's cold. <laughs> So you see, the language which we have to describe things is so, so limited. But we can still know it. That's why if the mindfulness really starts to get strong in silence and we're not deceived by the words and descriptions. Yes, but to know the body fully, uh, you need to close your eyes and then be turn your mindfulness into your body as well, isn't it? Yes, certainly, yes. Yes. So she but name the body fully. We don't know the whole body fully, first of all. We know parts of it. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, and then from that, yeah. you can... Uh, what's it? You can understand, you can make the... Oh, what's the word in logic? You get, it works on one thing and you can apply it to almost everything. Infer. Influence. Yeah, yeah. That's what we do in science. You don't test every uh, bit of water in the tanks at Jana Grove. You take a sample and you infer that that sample wasn't really any different than any other sample of water you take from those tanks. Yeah, close <laughs> So you take a sample of the body yeah. in your meditation sure. and you can infer that that's pretty much the same as every other body. Yes. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you very much. Okay. Please excuse me, I don't get far <laughs> in these talks, but I find it interesting. Do you find it okay, or am I going too slow? If I'm going too slow, you don't have to come next week. Or two weeks. So, then you mindfully you breathe in, mindfully you breathe out. So you're aware of the breathing. Then, and please have a look at how I write this, how I translate this. It's keeping the meaning of the original, but I never like to translate word by word. It's like phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence. When the in-breath and out-breath are long, you are aware that they are long. The original says, Breathing in a long breath, you know it's a long breath. Breathing out, uh, 
long in out breath, you know it's a long out breath breathing in a short in breath, you know it's a short in breath being out a short out breath, you know it's a short out breath. It gets so complicated that anyone who was trying to describe this to someone to get the meaning across has too many words. So saying uh, when the in-breath and out-breath are long, you are aware they are long. When the in-breath and out-breath are short, you are aware that they are short. And it doesn't mean you have to do stage one and then stage two. One of the other things which really confused me when I first read this as a student, what do you mean by a long in-breath? Or a short, how short does it have to be? to be a short in-breath, just to be <coughs> Can it just be <coughs> What about a long, how long is a long in-breath? <sighs> and it became quite unnatural. And then I noticed that most of the time, my in-breaths and out-breaths, they weren't long, they weren't short, they were kind of average. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not practicing the Satipatthana. I'm not doing mindfulness of breathing because I'm doing it wrong. Not as the Buddha said, breathing a long breath or a short breath. <laughs> so after a while, when I use arguments like that to try and refine this teaching, you don't have to breathe in a long breath or a short breath. You're aware of your breath. And that's one thing you kind of know. Is it short, really short? Is it medium, is it long? or very long, it gives you one extra thing to be aware of when you are breathing, just the length of the breath. You don't have to do stage one and then stage two. Whatever your breath happens to be, you're aware of its length. And that is replaced by other types of mindfulness of breathing practices, such as in the Thai wilderness tradition, not a forest tradition. That sometimes when you breathe in, you chant to yourself, Bud, and breathe out, Ho, Bud, Ho, Bud, Ho, with the breath. That's one way of doing it. Or you can do counting with the breaths, which is, you know, honestly, I made up my own counting method, which I found useful for a while. Remember, I was a theoretical physicist before, I like numbers. I still do Sudokos with a lot of relish. So, breathing in one, breathing out one. In two, out two. In three, out three. In four, out four. In five, out five. In six, out six. In seven, out seven. In eight, out eight. In nine, out nine, up to nine. I start again at one. In one, out one. But only go up to eight next time. In eight, out eight. Then back to one. In one, out one. And up to, you're really interested, aren't you? Because you probably haven't tried this before. <laughs> it's something else to do. And to me, that worked for a while, but after a while I thought that was just not really necessary. But at least it showed me, when I'm meditating a lot on the breath, if I was really sleepy or not. Because if I was sleepy, sometimes I catch myself breathing in 16 out, 16 in. <laughs> you forgot to stop. You didn't know where you were. And so that kind of showed me it didn't really work for me. But if it works for you, fine. There's all sorts of other ways of 
adding something to make the breath more interesting. But anyway, you do the in-breath, out-breath, and then you learn to experience the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. I'm translating the sentences. In the, some people translate, and it's a word-for-word -word translation, you breathe in and out, experiencing the whole body as you breathe in and out. Sabakaya, the whole body. And to me, the, the word pali, when it says the whole, it does actually really mean everything in the body. So you can, the literal translation of that, you'll be able to breathe in and out, uh, knowing your big toe on your left foot, and the little toe, and just you know, your right ear and your left ear and know it. It's impossible to know everything. Perception can't do that. Perception can only know the most important parts. So it actually does literally mean the whole of the breath. And the Buddha says in a moment that the breath is uh, regarded as part of the body, as a body in itself. You learn to experience the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. And number four, you learn to calm the breath as you breathe in and out. The kaya sankara, the body formation of the breath. Sometimes that's a Pali word which you just pass over, but it has an important meaning when we get to the next four of the, of the uh, mindfulness of breathing, satipatthana. What you're doing here is you see the whole of the physical feeling of breathing. In the next four, you experience the mental formation of the breath. And it has a totally important uh, point to make about breath meditation. You have six senses. You experience in the breath through the feeling, the sensation of touch. You can also know it through the sensation of knowing. Chitta Sankara, and that comes up next. You'll hear me say more about that the next time. Just as a skilled painter is aware whether I'm making a long brush stroke or a short brush stroke, so too when the in-breath is long, you're aware that it is long or short. The original, the original simile, just as when you are uh, turning a lathe to actually to carve something. How many of you have used a manual lathe, not an automatic electric lathe? You have, well done. I did that over in Thailand, making stuff with a manual lathe. You can understand that simile, but if you've never used one, the simile doesn't really make much sense, so I changed the simile to painter. You've all done some painting, so you know it's a long stroke or a short stroke. And so that's the simile used by the Buddha. And in this way you're aware of your own body or you are aware that the bodies of others are the same nature as yours or you abide aware of the nature of both your own and others' bodies. And so again, this is the inference. You can understand your own body, that's your main experiment, and as your body is, so all other bodies. If you're a Buddha or just a um, bus driver, it doesn't matter. 
It just means the bodies are the same. They've got differences, but essentially the same. Or else you abide aware. This is most important. This is why we do this. You are aware of what causes the arising of the body. And it's the four nutriments. You abide what? You abide aware the body will cease when the four nutriments cease. Or you abide contemplate the body's causal nature of both arising and ceasing. What are the four nutriments? This is the cause of a body. Go on. Yeah, food. Contact. Contact yes. Sure, maybe shorter. I'm not sure. Okay, no. The other, the other one is will and consciousness. These actually make the body viable. The one I like of those four is the third one, will. If you lose the will to live, you die. And that's really quite an amazing thing that sometimes that people, the doctors can't find any reason for their death, but they've actually basically lost the will to live. And even the Buddha said that, that's a, a nutriment without which the body can't survive. That's why the, I'm 72 now, I'm old enough to die. You know why I can't die right now? Because you won't let me. That's not a joke. That's very serious. <laughs> anyway, or you abide contemplating the body's causal nature of both arising and ceasing, or else mindfulness that it is just a body, impermanent, suffering, not me, not mine, and not a permanent essence, is established in you to the extent necessary for mindfulness and wisdom essential for liberation. Your body, I don't know how long you've been in your body, but it's just a body, and it's not gonna be you know, there forever for you. It's not who you are. You know, you're not Russian or Ukrainian or Malaysian or, or, or Polish or English. That's just a body, that's just a vehicle which you're in for this lifetime. Just because you drive a Porsche doesn't mean you are a Porsche. Or you drive an old battered combi wagon doesn't mean that's who you are. That's just a vehicle you happen to be driving. And so because of that, you realize the body is pretty much the same. It's not me, not mine, not a permanent essence. It's impermanent suffering, that's all. And you abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world, certainly not your body. This is one way, it's not the only way, the one way that you are mindful of the body. The other ways come soon. But I have gone on. Are we supposed to finish at four or 4.15 or 4.30? What's the usual time to finish? Five? Four. Whenever you decide. Okay, well. <laughs> Now I think that's a nice place to stop because that's just the first part of the Satipatthana and up to the, um, just the first mindfulness of the body example. There's many more to come.
So any questions or comments? And then questions and comments are more important than what I say. Yes, Sue? Um, just the second is that contact? Yeah. Mm. That's right, yes. Basically, you do need some sense activity. And that's caused by the contact. You know, that's one of the reasons why when you were in physiotherapy before, I don't know how many times you've been with somebody in a coma in hospital or they're not speaking to anybody. Are they dead? Are they alive? If you want them to carry on living, talk to them. Give them some sensory contact. Touch their hands, stroke them. They may not be responding at first, but if you refuse and stop stroking them or talking to them and giving some physical, some contact for their senses, then of course they will pass away. But it's amazing, you know, you keep on just stimulating them. I said this the other day that this one guy, his last words before he died, he was from, from Lancashire, this man. And he was in a hospital, in the hospice, sorry. He was dying and we were, I was with him, with his family, and I think he was going to die any time. And it went on and on and on. Thought he was going to die, but then he didn't. And then, of course, I was there and it was close to you know, 12 o'clock, the cut-off point for my lunch. And they knew about monks, and so we'd better get you some lunch. So they just got the nearest takeaway. I couldn't actually say what I wanted. And so it included chi chips, you know, French fried potatoes. And so the daughter said to her dad, Dad, do you want a chip? And that was her father's last words. Yes, I want a chip. And then he passed away. <laughs> they were surprised that he even opened his mouth and spoke. And he hadn't shown any signs of awareness for such a long time. So, if you see Ajahn Bamali and he's not saying anything, he's in a coma, just ask him, do you want some salmon? If you invite him for a chip, he'd probably just die. <laughs> you can understand what's going on there. You sort of contact something which, is, which you like. Or like in elderly people, you know, just playing the music which they were used to when they were growing up. That's powerful. It's the contact which gets uh, their mind the food which is necessary for them to be alive. Yes. In the first section, uh, it mentions about the body of breath. So, oh, yeah. So it is like the similar to the body of water. Right? Yeah. But then we, it talks about connecting your body and understanding other bodies also function like that. Yes. But so does it jump from the breath to the physical body? Yes, it's just especially the part of the body called the breath. Your breath and my breath are basically the same nature. It's not just other, no, actual bodies. You can infer from that. The way we breathe. Not all bodies actually breathe the same because sometimes people just breathe through the mouth or maybe they may have a little tube in their throat to be able to pass air, breathe from because they may have blockages in their mouth or in their nasal passages.
But it's basically the same. Air going in, air going out. Going, going, oh no, knock on yet. Yeah, thanks for the teachings, Ajahn. One uh, thing that I found myself thinking about at the beginning was about the five hindrances being restrained. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is the beginning uh, of meditation now, the yeah. seventh factor. And the, the first time I came across the five hindrances was when I was learning about meditation. So I kind of had the idea that meditation was about working with the five hindrances. Um, and I guess you, you've uh, presented it in a different way today. That oh, great. I guess, you know, first it's uh, uh, about working with the five hindrances, what through seal, out through restraint in life, and then, then getting to meditation. Yes. So I guess my question um, is, is there any role in meditation for, for working with the five hindrances? Well, basically the five hindrances are enemy number one on the path to enlightenment. That's what blocks you. So enemy number one, again, maybe I've been going to Singapore and Hong Kong too often, and Malaysia. Know the enemy, know yourself. Thousand battles fought, thousand battles won. That's a Chinese art of war. So you don't uh, overcome things like hindrances just through working with them or battling them. It's by knowing them, understanding them, and then it's pretty easy to overcome them. One of the lovely things about Buddhism, it is non-violent, especially in this, the meditation sense. They have this um, personification of difficulty called Mara. I think you've all heard of Mara. It's like a devil, but much more subtle than a devil. It's one of the reasons why when we brought this place here, Everyone was really excited because the name of the suburb is No La Mara. And if you know Singlish, that means you know, no definitely Mara. <laughs> no La Mara. <laughs> but the way that Mara is defeated, I was always fascinated about that. You don't defeat Mara by kicking ass. You don't fight Mara, you don't use violence. It was always, I know you, Mara. Always overcome through wisdom. And then Mara would actually shrug his shoulders, droop his head, the nun knows me, the nun knows me. And would admit defeat. Not through force, but through wisdom. And I thought, this is a beautiful, powerful teaching. That's how, you know, you're always going to overcome anything. Not through violence. You overcome the hindrances through understanding them. If that's what you mean by working with them, fine. But you have an ulterior motive to understand them so you can surpass them so easily. Thanks, yes. 
So then, could you say that when you understand the Mara, yeah. that you can separate from that, and in the separation with the distance, yeah. you have that space? Yeah, the Mara can't find you. That's one of the things which they said again in the suttas, in the Pali. If you get into a deep meditation, like a jhana, Mara can't find you. And got a clue where you've gone. You can't get to those places, got too much thinking and controlling. Can't do that. So these are the places they say make Mara blinded. Okay. I got oh, I've got a question here. Okay. This will be the last question because it is, I can see my ride back to monastery is ready. Ah, why does it change from aware of to learns? And can the Kaya Sankara go from complexity to simplicity in jhana? What to make of lights observing, of lights observing sensations in the body? Why does it change from aware to learn? I've got to check where it says that. Okay, you learn to experience the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. That's the mindfulness of breathing. And you're aware that they are long, you're aware that they are short. And you don't, to calm the breath, it is not just an awareness, it's an understanding of how the breath becomes calm. You can't just say, breath, become calm. Breath, don't just breathe in so much that when you are breathing in and out, you're aware that they are short, then you learn to experience the whole of the breath. How does that work? How do you do that? A lot of time it's a natural, see, awareness builds up. There's less, this is the simile I usually give to the whole awareness of the breath. This is simile of the breath, the beginning of an in-breath, all the way to the end of an in-breath, beginning of an out-breath, all the way to the end of the out-breath. I wasn't aware of the whole movement of my finger. Now I'm aware every moment from moving in, it pauses, aware as it moves out. How do you do that? It's not through willpower. It's by seeing the joy in the breathing. You don't want to take your, your um, eyes off it. I remember as a young man when I was attracted to girls. You'd see a girl walking down, one you liked, and you couldn't take her, your eyes off her. Why? Because you see the beauty in that. And I use that simile to see the beauty in the breath. Breath starting out. Can't take my eyes off my breath. See it going the other way. It's not willpower. Is wisdom power and adding that kindfulness which makes things like the breath so peaceful and so beautiful. And I love that beauty and that peace. It's so attractive. That's why it's easy. It grabs my attention. I don't disturb it. That's why it becomes easy to do. That's what I learned. That's how I learn. 
and the Kaya Sankara go from complexity to simplicity in jhana? No, the Kaya Sankara disappears. And that's found in the next um, tetrad for cases of Anapanasati. You're not experiencing the breath as a physical sensation anymore. You're seeing mostly the mental formation, which turns it into something so delightful. The breath isn't delightful, it's just a feeling in the body. It's what the mind adds to it, how the mind sees the breathing. And you find as you go to that stage, the physical feeling of the breath becomes less important. But the joy of the breath, how the mind appreciates the breath, becomes dominant. But that is just a preview of the next class, coming to a Buddhist center close to you in two weeks' time. I hope to see you then. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yes, thank you all. Oops. Okay. Okay. You can bow if you wish and to leave. You don't have to wait for me because I've got these things I've got to all close up before I can go. Good.